Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great educational website? Then go to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll free of charge. Get a free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. Look, I've got awesome classes there. Classes on the Constitution, classes on the Civil War, classes on secession, classes on American history. A whole slew of great stuff just waiting for you. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com, enroll, and get a real history education. George Kennan is one of the most important American intellectuals of the 20th century. I'll explain why on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Also, go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. Go to Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe there. You can also click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. If you're watching on YouTube, click on the super thanks button. Lots of great ways to support the show financially, but as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review where you can. Leave a text review where you can. And if you're on YouTube, leave a comment for the algorithm. All those things help get more ears and eyes on the program. And of course, send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right, well, let's talk about George Kennan. Now, a lot of people, if you you have a rudimentary education, maybe a college degree, you might have heard of George Kennan before. And even if you've had a K-12 education, you should have heard of George Kennan in your 20th century U.S. history class. In fact, it's George Kennan who famously came up with what's called the Containment Doctrine with the Soviet Union. But George Kennan is bigger than that in terms of an intellectual heavyweight in American history. When Kennan retired, he became one of the most active anti-imperialists in America. And not only that, he was someone who firmly believed in American secession. He thought America was too big, and he thought America needed to be decentralized, uh, that it had become corrupt, and the only way to do that was to break it apart. And so Kennan is someone we should all study. Now, he also wrote beautifully. If you've ever read his memoirs, Kennan had one of the best descriptions I've ever read of Joseph Stalin. I mean, it's fantastic. It's about two pages long, but it's just so good. And he was a realist. I mean, he, he's in the Soviet Union. To read the, his, his memoirs read like a novel. To read what he's saying about being in the Soviet Union and dealing with Stalin and dealing with the Soviets back in the immediate post-World War II period is just, I mean, amazing. And so Kennan uh, should be somebody that people read and, and digest. But now, what does he have to do with modern American foreign policy? He's been dead for a little while. He lived to be close to 100 years old. But he's been dead for a little while. And he had some things to say about American foreign policy and retirement that I think we should all pay attention to. And in fact, there was a piece that Lou Rockwell republished uh, last week on his website. And the title is George Kennan and the Wolfowitz Doctrine. And, and 
Uh, this piece is by uh, Patrick Foy. And so I want to read parts of this because I think if we're looking at the real structural problems with America and American government, and when I talk about secession, and I said I've made statements about, well, you know, I don't know if, if Americans are really ready for this. There's some reasons for that. And I'll, and I'll just make this, say this about that. In 1775, when the United States seceded, when the states seceded from the British Empire, Americans were much more independent than they are now. In 1860 and 61, when the southern states seceded from the United States, Americans are much, were much more independent than they are now. And what I mean by that is financial independence, and we didn't have an economy that was so tied in to the central authority in either time. You had very much independent people working in all kinds of independent ways, whether it was farmers or manufacturers or uh, you know merchants. They were independent. And the financial disruptions, even at that time from the war, were tremendous on people. I mean, you go and read the hardships that people had to go through, and people were very independent. They were, they were self-sufficient in many ways. Nobody is that way now. I mean, there are, I say nobody. There are very few people who are that way now. In fact, as you read through this particular piece and what George Kennan said about the military-industrial complex, and then you take that on the flip side and you take the butter side of it, which is all the social welfare spending in the United States, you have a, a vast segment of the American economy. I mean, you're talking about the majority of it in one way or another that's tied into the central government. So if you disrupt that, you're disrupting a tremendous amount of economic activity in the United States. Now, this could, this, we, could, we could argue this is a bad thing, that this much involvement from the U.S. economy, but it's a real thing, right? So, uh, and then you look at the, the way that the American economy is driven with interest rates, and we're seeing it right now. The amount of debt that people have in all kinds of ways, whether it's through car payments whether it's through mortgage payments, whether it's through credit card payments, we float the entire economy on credit. So you take all that away. You'd have to set up parallel structures to begin with so that when one goes away, the other one's ready to step in. And until that happens, you would have tremendous economic dislocation. This is what I'm saying about Americans need to be much more independent. Essentially, if you want to talk about a kind of independence movement, political independence movement in America, you have to have social independence first. This is where education comes in. And this is where people, I mean, even though he's a Lincolnian, people like Dave Ramsey, for example, are important because they're trying to teach you how to become much more financially independent people. That's an essential thing. And it's very hard to do in the modern economy. Even if you're working for something, let's say you're working in education, your salary is dependent on state resources oftentimes. Now, if you're working at a private school, not so much. But even there, uh, you know, if you're working at a, at a college, you might be getting federal funds. I mean, there's all kinds of ways people are tied into this massive federal system. And it's, it's very hard to break away from. So you would see some tremendous economic dislocation should there ever be a type of independence movement. So this is where people have to be independent before systems and structures can be independent before states can be independent because of all of that slopping at the federal trough. The states are just as guilty as a central government uh, in terms of, or individuals, I should say, in terms of slopping at the trough. They want all the federal money too. 
you've got to break all that. And to do that, you have to create independent-minded people. And this is where this piece, I think, is fascinating because George Kennan pointed this out during the Cold War. He said the entire system, the American economy, is dependent on the military-industrial complex. If we don't have a boogeyman to go fight, we lose economic activity because we can't build missiles and machine guns and uh, and rockets and tanks and everything else. We can't build any of that stuff. And then we've got this massive social welfare system established, which is the United States military. You've got people that go in the military when they can't do anything else or don't want to do anything else or whatever it is. They So they go into the military and it becomes a job and they stay in it. And of course, a lot of these people are also, unfortunately, on other types of social services. So you have a massive social welfare system set up because of the military. If you got rid of the military, let's say you downsized the military to fit the level of other places in the world. Uh, what are all these people that are in the military going to do? What jobs are they going to have? Where are they going to go? I remember when I was an undergraduate, uh, I had a Marxist uh, political science professor and this is, the, this is the argument he made for the entire social welfare system, right? It provides jobs. It provides middle-class people jobs. You, know, you work for the government here. You work for the government there. You do this. You do that. And so you have jobs. And even there, if you take the money that's pumped in the economy and you, and you see what kind of jobs that creates, creates, of course, you're taking it out of the private sector and you're pumping it back into the public sector. Um, so you're taking away economic activity from other people, but it does create this, this structure in place. And what are you going to replace that with? People are going to ask that question. What about all the uh, social welfare programs and Social Security and Medicare? And, all? and to say that we'll just do away with that isn't a realistic answer. People aren't going to vote for that then. So there has to be something else there. This is my whole point about independence. You have to create independent people. And you have to do that. It's going to be a very long process. You have to do it from the bottom up. People have to change their thought process on these things to start thinking about independence in a different way. Now, it doesn't mean it's it shouldn't be explored. It doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about this. It doesn't mean there should at least be a kind of threat that if the central government abuses its power, the people can leave. A free people anywhere have a right and duty to alter or abolish their government should it become destructive to life, liberty, and property. Those are three things. This is the founding generation. This isn't Brian McClanahan. This is the founding generation saying that. But the fact is we have all these structures in place. And that's why I wanted to talk about George Kennan. So the piece says, what are they trying to do? What do they want to accomplish and why? With reference to the entrenched cabal that has been running Washington for decades, in particular since the end of the Cold War in 1990, these basic questions have been racking my brain in recent weeks. We've got to step back and, and look at the big picture, a larger context. Does the world's current predicament basically derive from the so-called Wolfowitz Doctrine of 1992, prepared under the stewardship of Dick Cheney at the Pentagon? In the aftermath of the Soviet Union collapse in 1989 and the U.S.-led successful ejection of Saddam Hussein from Kuwait in 1991, Washington lost its bearings. Its collective mindset went, went uh, faint. To quote from the Pentagon document, known as the Defense Plan Planning Guidance, quote, The U.S. must now show the leadership necessary to establish and protect a new order that holds the promise of convincing potential competitors that they need not, not aspire to a greater role or pursue a more aggressive posture to protect their legitimate interests. In non-defense areas, we must account sufficiently for the interests of the advanced industrial nations to discourage them from challenging our leadership 
or seeking to overturn the established political and economic order. We must maintain the mechanism for deterring potential competitors from even aspiring to a larger regional or global role. So this is the Pentagon document, Defense Planning Guidance. So the United States must clamp down on anyone who wants to threaten our position as the superpower in the world. We have to deter them from doing this. So he says, granted such grandiosity and hubris may have been understandable under the circumstances. However, in retrospect, it was not just outlandish, but most unwise. Instead of cashing the peace dividend on behalf of the American people thanks to the end of the Cold War, Washington ginned up another open-ended mission almost immediately. The question is, why would they do that? That's the question that Foy's asked. Why would they do this? Why would they gin up another open-ended mission? The Cold War, remember, is open-ended is to contain communism, to stop communism, wherever it exists, by any means necessary. So what does that mean? It means Korea. It means Vietnam. It means Eastern Europe. It means wherever. It means South America. Wherever we have to go to stop communism. That's what it means. And to do that, you have to create a very large, as Eisenhower called it, military-industrial complex. you got to create the CIA. you got to create the FBI. you you got to enhance the FBI. you got to do all of these things. Because that requires sufficient energy and resources to go fight the communist boogeyman. This is what you got to do. Now, it doesn't mean the communist threat wasn't real at times. I'm not saying that. But you have to have these things in place so you can do that. This unipolar world crusade was advocated by private agenda actors, neocons, and neoliberals, who were themselves in the saddle in Washington carrying out policy. A saner course of action would have been to call out of retirement the wise man of U.S. foreign policy, George Kennan, along with ace Pentagon analyst Chuck Spiney. The latter must have been a Kennan enthusiast because not too long ago he brought to my attention a mind-boggling 1987 statement contained in Kennan's book At Century's Ending, Reflections 1982-1995. Quote, this is from Kennan. Were the Soviet Union to sink tomorrow under the waters of the ocean, the American military-industrial complex would have to remain substantially unchanged until some other adversary could be invented. Anything else would be an unacceptable shock to the American economy. End quote. So if the Soviet Union was to go away tomorrow, we'd have to keep the military-industrial complex and come up with a new enemy. I was listening to Sean Hannity riding, driving home the other day. He was on. I just had the radio on, talk radio. He was on. And again, he's trumpeting this axis of evil. We've got a new axis of evil. This axis of evil. We have to go out and fight the axis of evil. And how do we do that? Well, we build new weapon systems. We have more men in the military. Now, men and women in the military. We have uh, more guns, more bullets, whatever it is. We have to have more of that stuff. And we got to have an open-ended uh, agenda to go fight evil wherever it is. That could be in Ukraine, fighting the evil Russians. It could be in the Middle East, fighting the evil Syrians or the evil Iranians. It could be uh, in, in Asia, fighting the evil Chinese. It has to be evil. There has to be an evil somewhere. It could be in South America, fighting the evil Venezuelans or Cubans. It has to be evil somewhere. It's, it is the most Yankee busybody foreign policy you can have. It is a, an, a, the natural outgrowth of the Republican agenda of the 1860s. And if you don't believe me, go back and look at what they started saying during the war. Well, if we're going to 
make the world better by taking out the South, that was their opinion, then we have to make the world better by taking out evil anywhere it exists. Evil, quote-unquote. Right? The Confederates were the first evil, and they had to be done away with, and we had to fight evil everywhere else. We had to liberate people all over the world. And they actually started thinking about this openly. Like in Crete, there was an effort to, uh, to try to help Cretan independence uh, by the Republican Party. Now, there have been places before, South America, you know, John Quincy Adams had talked about this. Well, I mean, yes, we sympathize with these people trying to throw off the saddle of imperialism, you know, European monarchy, but it's not our job to do it for them. They have to do it themselves, just as we did. Now, of course, you can say, well, the French did help, but regardless, they had to do it themselves. It's not our job to get involved in that, and that was the Monroe Doctrine. Europe, take care of your own business. You just keep these people out of here. We're not going to let you have any new, new, uh, you know, monarchist colonies here in the in the in the new world, the, the Americas. But uh, whatever's there, we'll just leave. And these people have to take care of this stuff themselves. So American intervention was something new in the 1860s, and it carried forward into the late 19th century. Look, Republicans with the Spanish-American War. Uh, and then you look at the progressives and all the things they did in the early 20th century. And, of course, the, the big move was World War I and then into World War II. And, I mean, this is, we haven't left a wartime footing since World War II. They just transferred it all over to other things. So Foy says, at this point, could this be true? Could this be true? Could it be true that we need this open-ended war to save the economy. He says, was it the crux of the problem? The U.S. economy required a threat, real or imagined, to keep its economy humming? Simple as that. Is that it? Perhaps it was intuitively understood by high Pentagon officials, acting as insiders and front men for the military-industrial complex. Ergo, the peace dividend was not an option. H.W. Bush's New World Order, an ego trip presided over by Washington's masterminds, was the alternative, the only solution. If summoned to duty, Kennan and Spiney would have put their heads together to arrive at a peaceful and honest scenario for the U.S. to engage the world in place of a fraudulent, self-serving crusade. I'm thinking Kennan in charge of the State Department and Spiney at the Pentagon, both granted plan-potentiary powers by the White House to checkmate the mischief-makers. You can't rewrite history, of course, but it's fun to try. I'm not a fan of Gideon Rockman, chief foreign affairs columnist for the Financial Times. He has become of late little more than a Me Too show for the Washington Foreign Policy Establishment. Back in November 2011, he wrote an informative review of Kennan's definitive biography. Rockman recorded the following. It is all you need to know about George Kennan. Quote, After his retirement from active diplomacy, Kennan spent much of the rest of his life as a bitter critic of U.S. foreign policy and of American culture in general. Although some regard him as the first Cold Warrior, Kennan himself became an opponent of the Vietnam War and a passionate advocate of nuclear disarmament. Later, after the end of the Cold War, Kennan fiercely criticized the policy of enlarging NATO to take in the countries that had once belonged to the Warsaw Pact, arguing this was needlessly provocative towards Russia. The word needlessly is apt, Foy says. I agree, right? Kennan... We, we should listen more to George Kennan. He, again, he's talking about you know breaking up states, everything's a corruption, all that stuff. These are all good ideas. But what he points out as the issue is that we have everything tied into the center, so how do you break that? That's the point I brought up earlier on this, in this podcast. How do you break that? You have to have independent people. 
Clearly, Kennan should be considered a wise man not just for his famous long telegram outlining the containment of the Soviet Union in the aftermath of the Second World War, but for everything else he wrote and lectured about thereafter. Next to him, Washington luminaries like Paul Wolfowitz, Dick Cheney, Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, Mike Pompeo, Tom Friedman, Richard Haas, Robert Kagan, Tony Blinken, etc. can be written off as morons and warmongers, which is a great line in this piece. So next to Kennan, all these people are just morons. It's hilarious. It's true, though. It's very true. Which brings me to China. So this is where you get into China. Again, people are riled up about China. Is China a threat to the United States? If we consider George Kennan's just-quoted analysis, it means that Washington has, to, has been incentivized to make enemies and create threats. Otherwise, the American economy might go into shock due to a contraction of the military-industrial security complex. This premise may not be 100% operative, but the fact remains that Washington, for some as yet undiagnosed reason, has not yet incentivized itself to embrace new friends and act honestly in world affairs. One wonders why. Why haven't they done this? Why haven't they incentivized being good guys, but rather incentivized being bad guys? Well, you go back to that thing. Washington has to deter. It has to force down people that are trying to rise up. and, And they do it because it has to create this climate where we are the global superpower. But we could have incentivized other things. Trade. Honest dealings with other nations. We could have done that, but we didn't. We incentivized the axis of evil, the Cold War, whatever it was. We're incentivizing hostility rather than peace. So he says, its foreign policy track record has been intellectually dishonest, irrational, astoundingly hypocritical, selfish, and violent. Do we just stand by and accept it? Do we pretend it's not happening? The charade continues in the current U.S. confrontation with China, which is being targeted just like Russia. We have been propagandized to regard both nations as existential threats to America, which must be dealt with in the name of democracy. And again, this is what both the left and the neocons are saying, right? All the little idiots running around on social media with little Ukrainian flags next to their, oh, look at me, I'm virtue signaling Ukraine. I mean, this is just a bunch of dopes. These people are so stupid. By putting that flag in their, in their, in their little, whatever, bio, whatever, they're showing their stupidity. It's like, I'm stupid, here's my flag. This, this is the mark of stupidity. It really is. It's a mark of stupidity. It, it's, they're, they're willingly doing it. Here, I'm stupid. Here's my little flag in my bio. It's hilarious, really, when you think about it. If you want to just point out the dummies, that's how you do it. I mean, it's like if people could have just been, look, here, here we're going to give you a, a, a symbol to show that you're stupid. And then people willingly said, yeah, I'll do that. Here, I'm stupid. Bonk. Put it on their social media account. And the funny thing is, of course, I, I've written by written by other places, you know, people flying Ukrainian flags. Again, how can you show you're stupid? Well, you do that. Fly it in front of your house. How stupid can I be? Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's where we are in America, right? Let your stupid show. My common sense view is that China and Russia are being targeted simply because they have been successful, not because they are valid threats to the peace and prosperity of the U.S. or the world. The war in Ukraine is the direct result of Washington's intrigues, pressure, plots, and aggressive policies in Eastern Europe and inside Ukraine itself. These have been thoroughly chronicled and exposed in the non-establishment media, most prominently by Professor John uh, Mearsheimer and by the late great Professor Stephen Cohen. The outbreak of war was an inevitable result. 
My Democrat and Republican friends can express their self-righteous indignation with Vladimir Putin all they want. They fail to comprehend that their own government is ultimately to blame for the conflict. That realization would upend their world. I mean, that's a beautiful line, too. This is where uh, the uh, people just don't see it, right? They have to have this worldview that makes them feel better about themselves. It's self-righteous. It's Yankeeism, right? The, what he's not saying here is that this is a disease called Yankeeism. Self-righteousness. I am right, and I have to have everything fit into this, and so I will be right the whole time. And America's right, right or wrong, it's America, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm right. I'm right. This is the Lincolnian myth. They have to do it to make them feel better about themselves. Well, look, we were the good guys. We were the good guys. It doesn't matter. All that, was, all that stuff doesn't matter. All these things that happened, you, they deserved it. But what they don't see is that all the things that are problems, we created. We created. And, of course, that's the same case in Ukraine as well. Indeed, those in charge in Washington secretly regard the war in Ukraine as a foreign policy success. From their crack-brained point of view, it has been a triumph. I agree. They have demonized Russia and cut Europe off from Russia, perhaps for generations. Mission accomplished. This is ominous and unnatural. Does anyone believe that Washington's honest, Washington honestly tried to bring peace to Ukraine and Eastern Europe in the aftermath of the Cold War, and more recently the run-up to the present conflict? Does anybody really believe that? Well, the, neo, I mean, the dopes do. They put their little flag there. It's just like they believe that Lincoln tried to have peace with the South. Which is the complete, it's the exact opposite. Lincoln was pushing for war the second he stepped into the White House. At that time, just called the Executive Mansion. He was pushing for it. We know this because it's been documented. We know this because the policy shift was clear. When James Buchanan was in office, he made it a point to say, I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause war. And Winfield Scott followed suit. When Abraham Lincoln comes into office, Lincoln says, we're going to do all we can to pressure the South. And Winfield Scott followed suit by putting military pressure on the South. The point was war. And he forced the South into firing on Sumter because they told Lincoln, if you provision the fort, we consider that to be an act of war because you're taking a position that will be seen as hostile towards our independence. Don't do it. Just leave it alone. Let's negotiate. Let's come up with some, some solution to this problem. We don't have to have war. We never had to have war in 1861. It never had to happen. What would have happened if Lincoln hadn't pursued that is you would have had, what, seven states out of the Union? The rest would have stayed in. And eventually you might have had those seven states come back in. Maybe, maybe not. But the United States didn't dissolve. It still existed. The whole idea that you know the United States is going to dissolve if we don't have these seven states is just a completely stupid position. You wouldn't have had access to the Gulf of Mexico, and you would have had a free trade zone right to the south of the United States, and that would have harmed uh, U.S. commerce, which is why Lincoln wanted to go in and do it, right? He wanted to save the Union because of the political and economic threat the Confederacy represented. But uh, Lincoln could have chosen peace. He didn't. And this is the same thing. Well, we've been trying to help peace in Russia and Ukraine. No, you didn't. You've been pushing for war the whole time. And here he gets into this. He says the fuse was lit in 2014 when Washington engineered a coup in Kiev that overthrew the elected government. 
Yeah, this is what Washington does. It's just like Iran. Same thing in Iran, same thing in other parts of the world, South America. We've done this over and over again, right? Well, who was in office in 2014? Who was there? Of course, the Obama administration and Joe Biden. Right? So when Biden comes back into office in 2021, seven years later, they just pick up where they left off. This is why you had a reprieve when Trump was in office because he wasn't pursuing this policy. Next, Washington did everything it could to exacerbate an interesting conflict between Moscow and Kiev. In some, Washington decided in the 1990s to continue the Cold War, which it had won against the Soviet Union. It was relaunched against non-communist Russia when Vladimir Putin reformed and re reformatted Russia. This mischief-making endeavor has morphed into a hot war capable of ending in a nuclear exchange. The roadmap for all this was contained in the 1992 Pentagon, Pentagon document nicknamed the Wolferitz Doctrine. It is the genesis. The U.S. is at war with Russia economically, militarily, in six waves from Sunday. It is an undeclared war indeed, unacknowledged and even denied by the White House. Normally, this would be viewed as a train wreck, a failure of U.S. foreign policy. But it's not. They consider it to be uh, a, a victory, right? And he says, as for China, it's an opportunity, not a threat. Taiwan is a non-issue. It has only become an issue because Washington decided to inject itself into, a, into this China affair. Official U.S. policy is that Taiwan is part of China and that China is one country. So why all the fuss? This was settled decades ago when Nixon visited China. I've asked myself, what would George Kennan do? I'm confident he would not do what Washington is now frantically doing in confronting China. Yeah, I mean, probably not. Like Ukraine, Taiwan has been used as a wedge issue to irritate its large, powerful next-door neighbor. It is a pawn in a cynical game. Washington has even enlisted NATO and the EU in this fake crisis over Taiwan. Beijing must be amused as well as irritated. The EU, like the U.S., is committed to the one-China policy, but that has not prevented the German foreign minister, uh, Annalena Baerbock, and the EU foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, from butting in and lecturing Beijing. The childlike Baerbock has openly declared that Germany and Europe are at war with Russia. At least she is more honest than Biden. She is the leader of the German Greens and a supreme busybody. I love that. In other words, she's a Yankee. Where does Yankeeism come from anyways? I mean, it's this particular type of English culture, but then you also inject all these 48ers, these Germans that came over. They were all busybodies too. And you get a real strain of Yankeeism. I mean, it's it's awful. Who's leading Germany to run, ruin by jumping on Washington's bandwagon, right? So and then he gets into what she did over in, in China uh, and um, why this is just ridiculously stupid. Uh, he said instead, he said this normalized relations and brought China into the light, right? And he's talking about when Nixon met in China. Otherwise, the Chinese might be still obsessing over Mao's red book of quotations and China would have remained a crazy country armed with hydrogen bombs. Instead, China is an economic powerhouse and has been called the factory of the world. Ask yourself, where would Apple, Computer, Amazon, Tesla, and Walmart be without China? Not where they are. Americans have to face the fact that they are dependent upon China just as China is dependent upon America. And this is not, not untrue. So why is Washington picking a fight with China? We are on a pathway to war for no good reason. It is the same blueprint Washington has followed with the Russian dossier. The Wolfowitz Doctrine is alive and thriving. There is no threat from China, uh, Foy says, just like there is no threat from Russia. Or it was done until Washington injected itself into Ukraine, in effect, adopting the country. It's become the 51st state. He doesn't say that, but that's what it is. 
Far from the threat, I view China as an American asset, a kind of annex and a success story. The Chi-Coms are not trying to destroy America and take over the world, as some of my white ring friends ardently believe. America and the wide world outside of America have benefited greatly from the rise of China, indeed from the rise of all of East Asia. Let's continue to benefit from it. So, I mean, we can talk about what China is doing. They are trying to gobble up resources around the globe, particularly in Africa. They're doing this quite extensively. Uh, They want to buy stuff and they want to trade with you. We can talk about trying to keep China out of the United States and doing things like that. But the fact is, by creating all of these boogeymen, all this axis of evil, you're, you're injecting the United States into things to try to prop up the military-industrial complex. And so the real battle in Washington in politics is not over anything other than which big government is going to get money. Is it going to be the welfare state or is it going to be the military-industrial complex? When we have real conservatives who talk about cutting both, they're often shouted down by the party leadership and the Republicans. Of course, they're not accepted by the Democrats. And so what we have are two groups fighting over all of the trillions of dollars of spoils that go into D.C. because they want the power. They want to pay their buddies. If it's the left, they want to pay their buddies in the welfare state. If it's the right, quote unquote, they want to pay their buddies in the military industrial complex, which is just another form of the welfare state. We forget all that. So what I like about this piece by Foy is that he's just pointing this out. United States foreign policy, and this is canon, would have been better off if we didn't do any of this stuff. But we decided to do it. And now, to break free from that, you've got to create independent people. We're not there yet. And so, until we can get there, this is going to be a very difficult process. And it takes a concerted effort uh, from, from anyone who's interested in that to try to do it. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week of The Brian McClanahan Show, and I'll see you next week. See you then.